Hello, everybody. Welcome to MH TV. We're really pleased to have you with us tonight. Tonight, we're going to be talking to a fantastic person I think you'll find really interesting. Um, I won't introduce her, I'll let her do that. But um, if you want to join in, if, if you want to ask questions, which you, you're more than welcome to do, um, there's ways that you can do that. And I'll hand over to Dave so that he can tell you how to do that. I, I thought I was going to be the fantastic person then, Nikki. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Got to earn it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Hi, everyone. Great to see you all tonight. Obviously, uh, I am here to do social media again tonight. Uh, and you've got a couple of ways that you can join in. The first is over on Twitter. All you need to do is use the hashtag MHTV. I'll be searching for that hashtag and I'll bring in any of the conversations that I can pick up online. Uh, the other thing where you can join in, obviously, is where you're watching us on Facebook Live. Just head to the right. Uh, you've got the panel to comment on the right side. If you want to put any comments or questions in there for Cara or for Nikki, uh, and then obviously it can bring them into the conversation. Without further ado, straight back to Nikki. Yeah, and I also got to say, um, uh, it's International Women's Day. So if you are an international woman, it is your day today. Yeah, happy, happy day. Um, and do take time to um, value yourself and your colleagues and say thank you and hello and give yourself a hug and do all those things that maybe sometimes we don't, we don't always remember to do. So before we get started, um, I would like you very much to, um, to welcome Cara. Cara, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, I'm Cara. Um, I am a mental health nurse by background and also a qualified children's cognitive behavioural therapist. Um, with my sort of non-clinical hat on, I am like a mental health campaigner and I do a lot of stuff around um, eating disorders and bipolar disorder and just sort of general mental health and well-being. And I've also written two books, which are self-help books. One is for people with eating disorders and one is also for people with bipolar disorder. And there are two more coming out in the future about OCD and about anxiety. Nice. It's very impressive, actually. I'm like really pleased that you're with us today, but also slightly intimidated. So we will <laughs> just get on. But you can tell us a little bit about how you, how you got to where you are now, because you've had a really interesting sort of journey. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, clinically, I um, I was diagnosed with an eating disorder in my sort of early teens and mm. with depression, mm. and ended up having an inpatient admission for a while on an, on an adolescent unit. And there were nurses there that I just thought were like the most amazing people in the world. And um, that was kind of what led to me training to be a mental health nurse in the end, because I just was really like inspired by the people that looked after mm. me. And I, I realised that I'm quite privileged in this, but I had a really positive experience of hospital and mental health care. And, and I generally have across sort of like the majority of my life really um so that was how I ended up going down the route of um doing my mental health nursing and I've always worked with children um yeah. since I worked with adults for about a year and then ever yeah. since I've worked with children um and I've also had really positive experiences of therapy and in nursing you know you kind of when you move up the ladder you kind of go in one of two directions you either go like management or you go like specialism and I just didn't ever see myself as someone who who would sit in a sort of manager's role yeah. um so that's why I went and did some more sort of specialist training in that area. And I now work as a CBT therapist in a um, child adolescent mental health service. And then my other sort of route was that I um, started volunteering for Time to Change, who were like a mental health campaign that ran for about 10 years that sadly yeah. got defunded last year. Um, that were like an anti-stigma campaign and I started working for them in on the children and young people's team going mm. into like schools and youth groups and places mm. like that sharing my sort of my own experiences of mental health and mental illness and 
eventually those two things just kind of started running concurrently um so now those two things were very separate before and I was very private about my sort of voluntary roles previously but now those two things are like really open together so like my work sometimes asks me to do talks about like what it's like to have an eating disorder and things like that um to like other clinicians in my team and things like that um and then with regards to my book so I did a lot of journaling while I was in treatment and I found it really valuable and people used to comment on it on social media and say that the resource like the resources were really helpful so I just put it all together and thought I'll just see what happens and it ended up just being really successful so they've now turned it into a series so there's going to be at least four now in the series but potentially more down the line and that's amazing and I think you know I just sort of cycling back to a part where you were saying you know you were describing at one point you were sort of going around the country talking about your experience of mental stress and experience of care and all those sorts of things but not really talking about it at work what was what was going on there so I think I had a quite a lot of sort of like internalized stigma around yeah. that sort of thing but also um I did find so like when I got my first job in the NHS as a support worker going back many many years ago now um yeah. I was told that actually you're probably never going to be able to work in CAMS because you've had your own mental health difficulties and actually you're probably never going to be able to be a nurse and this is well like a doctor in occupational health so somebody who should in theory you know know better than that mm. um and I, so I sort of really internalized that straight away mm. and um you know I'm sure anyone who works in mental health will know that sometimes much of the stigma comes from the people that work in it not just from mm. the people outside of it and I would hear people make really awful comments about people with eating disorders and things like that and then I just thought I can't tolerate the idea of anyone finding out that like I have experience in this area because it will make them think differently of me professionally maybe or people will think I'm not competent or mm. safe to do my job and all these sort of things so I think I just really internalized like a lot of those messages that I was getting from sort of the outside world about it mm. I think for me that's always that would always be my fear that fear of someone thinking that I wasn't good at my job which is just yeah. the, the least of your big problems isn't it if that's actually the case but yeah. I think it depends what where you where you get your sort of sense of identity or strength from doesn't it and it makes a really big difference so how did how did you turn that around how did you get to a stage where you sort of like were able to bring those two sort of sides of your experience together because that's what makes it so valuable isn't it I think yeah so I started writing um anonymously for like a few different um mm. blogs and things like that and they started getting quite a good reception mm. and then I started to feel a bit more confident like attaching my face and my name to it um oh. and again like it was just really well received and there were a lot of people saying that they thought it was like really valuable to see somebody particularly like a professional talking about having those kind of experiences um and then I think I don't know I kind of just started to not really feel ashamed of it anymore so I didn't mind talking about it and then the more I talked about it the more people wanted me to talk about it um yeah. because they were seeing that it was really valuable um and there was potentially um you know learning that could come from it from other people in the service and things like that and also um there's been a couple of times where I've had to have sort of relatively long episodes of sickness and because people in my work have already known in advance what my difficulties are that's not been difficult um mm. I've just been able to approach them and say actually this is going on for me at the moment um this is the kind of support I need and I think that's been that's made me feel a bit more confident about it as well because mm. um you know if you're keeping stuff like that a secret it's then really difficult to be able to ask for support from it if nobody knows about it so that was really helpful and I think the response that I've had from like my managers and things has just made me feel a bit more confident in that because they've always been really like accepting and really helpful mm. Mm. 
And it's it's really exciting this sort of like seeing you find your voice and you're using it not just for yourself but for other people as well. How did you you saying you know you started blogging, but how did you suddenly realize actually I'm good at this? I don't know. And I think like so I've always been like a writer, even since I was yeah. little. I've always kept like journals and books and, and yeah. things like that. Um, like I remember my mum said to me when my book got published, she was like, I've, I thought you were going to publish a book from when you were like five because you were just writing all the time. So like no one was like surprised by it. Um, I was a bit surprised by it, but like other people didn't appear to be so much. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I suppose like I just I built up an audience relatively quickly, I think. And I've never yeah. been 100% sure why that's happened to me compared to yeah. other people. Um, I think a lot of it's luck. And I don't know, you know, the the more people see your stuff, the more people then see it because it gets shared and things like that. So I think once you start building an audience, you're able to build it faster. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I just had really good reception from people about just saying that, you know, they were finding it really helpful and were like really connecting with some of it. And mm. that's when I just kind of thought this is something that I probably need to keep doing. Mm. I think one of the things I, I saw that was really interesting was this idea about creative approaches. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think I've always I've always been like quite a creative person anyway. Mm. Um, but in my last episode of treatment for my eating disorder, which was in <clears throat> from 2019 to 2021, mm. um, I kept like a series of journals while I was doing it, like bullet mm. journaling, which I'd never done before. I've got them all like next to me. There's like six of them and they're massive. Mm. Um, and I did stuff like um, wrote down everything I learned from like all my day hospital groups and all my like every time I had a therapy session I'd like write a summary after it and stuff like that but I also did things like um lots of like creative stuff like um drawing and coloring and like um yeah just loads of different loads of different creative activities really mm. and I found that like it was really useful for me to have a record of all the things that I'd learned but it was also the actual process of doing it that I found really therapeutic as well as just yeah. having like a record to look back on yeah. um and I'd spend you know easily like two or three hours a week just going through my journals making them look nice you know sticking washi tape in them and all sorts of yeah. stuff just, you know yeah. being creative with it and I just found the process of doing that so like relaxing and such a nice way to channel a lot of the anxiety that I was having that I thought it would be really nice to kind of combine both those things together of like some like evidence-based therapeutic stuff but also some just being able to like be yourself and kind of let mm. that out into like a contained space mm. and we were talking about this sort of before we before we came on in I really like that idea of, of, of sort of reclaiming something of yourself being positive instead of it instead of a book about an eating disorder being something that's like how not to get into serious trouble how to how to survive actually looking at something like the how to thrive yeah. how to become more yourself I think that's really it's really interesting and exciting. And I think the other thing that you sort of mentioned and, and you've sort of referred to again here was this idea that a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what the experience of eating distress is like. They mm. think it happens to a young girl and then that's it. They grow out of it. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that's obviously if you've had treatment reasonably recently, it's not the case. Yeah. So I've been in and out of treatment. I was in and out of treatment for about 18 years mm. um, on and off. So I spent all of my from from 13 to 18 I spent under cams and then from 20 to 30 I was sort of just in and out of the adult eating disorder service um waiting lists are enormous in adult services like even longer than they are in in cams at the moment um the provision just isn't there and the need is just growing like mm. year on year on year especially since covid like the rates of people with like eating disorders yeah. are just like astronomical since covid has happened um and I think 
I think because there is like a misconception that it's sort of like a teenage girl's illness the research and the funding and all those sort of things just isn't happening where it needs to and that just means by proxy people aren't just able to get the support that they need once they sort of turn into adulthood unless they're really severely unwell and that was like my experience so I asked for a, for a referral mm. in um at the start of 2019 and they just rejected it straight away because I wasn't underweight even though I'd been there three times started. before <laughs> um and then um six months later I was a an urgent case on, in hospital and on a waiting list for for day patient and then I ended up being off work for seven months um while I was in like intensive treatment program so like it was really frustrating for me yeah. because also yeah. I knew that they that wasn't their fault like they when I went and eventually had an assessment they were just like we're really sorry but I thought mm. that's not their fault it's because their hands are tied because of just the resources that are available to them mm. um, and I think a lot of that does come from the sort of perception that actually once you're an adult it shouldn't be something that's a problem anymore mm. I mean you brought up so many things that just made me so so cross <laughs> not with you <laughs> but like that idea that like instead of using your common sense about seriousness of, of presentation because any nurse worth their salt can look at someone and think oh we've got history here we've got someone who's able to point out that they can see that their symptoms are coming back yeah. if we put did something right now we could head off something that's obviously going to be serious and potentially life-threatening it's really serious yeah and instead of this idea that you just come around with like a tape measure or a weighing scale and then say mm, that's not much of a problem it mm -hmm. just it feels it feels the most bizarre and inhumane way to treat psychological distress yeah just, it's really um it's really um when everybody outdated. knows yeah when everybody yeah. knows emotional distress is not related to weight mm -hmm. and risk is not related to the size of someone's waistband it just it's like it makes, yeah. it's like saying what's your favorite color no that's the wrong color you don't get treated yeah <laughs> it makes no sense at all yeah and as well i remember the first time this happened to, to somebody i was working with it was in the 90s and i thought this is ridiculous and i just assumed that people would just say oh no it is ridiculous i don't know how this happened to stop doing it yeah. yeah the fact that it's alive and kicking as a, as a as a referral experience is is appalling yeah it's a real postcode lottery as well like I am so I live very close to my um local treatment clinic and that is also one of the only day patient clinics in the country um when actually we know there's loads of evidence that says day patient is one of the most effective forms of treatment um, because it yeah. prevents people going into hospital, supports yeah. people post-hospital, yeah. um, coming out back into the community, like really helps people like reduce relapse rates and things like that. But those provisions just don't really exist anywhere. Mm. It is, it's, it's, getting, it's getting worrying, especially if you present with more than one diagnosis. <clears throat> like, but that's not what the form is designed for. Like, yeah. No, we've only got one box, but you have two problems. So yeah. how, how has that been for you, sort of negotiating between the different types of experience and service? It's been... Uh... So the eating disorder service have actually been really good and they've just mm. been like, look, we can see you've got this diagnosis, but at the moment your bipolar is relatively well managed. So let just let us know if that changes. Mm. But when I've been under the community, like mental health services before, they've very categorically been like, we're not going to talk to you about your eating disorder because that's not where our knowledge lies. Um, so if you want to talk to someone about it, you need to go back to them. But that's not mm. what this space is for. Um, and that's really difficult because it's like, if I'm under a CMHT, I'm, I'm not there for therapy for my eating disorder, but I might still want somebody to just be like, I'm really sorry that that's going on for you. That sounds really difficult rather than just shutting me down mm. as soon as it feels like something. But surely but like, kind of anxiety that. exists across more than one diagnosis, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I wonder and, if, like, if people are scared. 
of, of I think that I think that and I think it's because I don't know my my experience I suppose of like my training I mean I qualified as an S about six years yeah I'm just about to revalidate again so six years ago um and there was I, I had I think two hours teaching about eating disorders in my whole undergrad three mm. years degree um mm. and I know that that's true you know of like medics and things like that and and it just it, it makes people feel like they're de-skilled and being able mm. to and it's like uh, you know I wasn't asking anyone to treat my eating disorder I just wanted someone to kind of validate that it was really difficult and to give me like a space to talk about it and I think yeah. people feel because there is this perception that eating disorders are really specialized which they are and they're very complex yeah. but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to even share that that person you're talking to is distressed Mm. um because if you're a mental health nurse you should have those skills to be able to sit with someone when they're distressed even if you don't know the ins and outs of why Mm. I think as well with the sort of like new curriculum which is so physical health skills based I think there's less and less space for therapeutic working for nurses for mental health nurses and I wonder if that which which kills me how how can you come out as a as a mental health nurse and not have even basic kind of counselling and listening skills, I find that quite yeah. a sad, a sad and worrying thing. It's getting really diluted, mental health nursing, I think. Mm, I agree. Um, so when did you realise that, you know, you were also sort of facing and, 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 and living with sort of bipolar illness as well? So when I was in hospital, when I was a teenager, I didn't know this at the time. I've only seen it mm. in paperwork subsequently. There was sort of, sort of a bit of a question mark around it. Um, but I think there was a lot there was so much else going on at the time that there was just a bit of like a watch and wait sort of thing. Um, But I think because predominantly it's been like depressive episodes that I've really struggled with. I was just diagnosed with like a recurrent depressive disorder. Um, Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the sort of the hypermanic and the manic episodes started getting like more pronounced and more prolonged in terms of how long they were Mm -hmm. lasting for. Um, that that happened so I I got um my GP referred me to a psychiatrist in the CMHT who did an assessment that said um there's actually a lot of indicators here that that's probably the case but because you're not actively in in any sort of episode right now it's probably not sensible of us to make a diagnosis because obviously it's like lifelong and it's serious and it changes potentially what your treatment options are and things like that so we probably need to just wait and see what happens but if anything does happen come back and then about uh maybe two months later I had a manic episode and got referred back in and then they just made a diagnosis like on the spot there but um so it was I was 15 when the, when it was sort of raised as maybe an issue in 25 when I got the diagnosis. So a very different picture from from eating disorder then? Yeah really different. Yeah. And do you feel that, that was a pattern that happens for a lot of people that's long slow diagnosis around bipolar? I think the average wait time is about 10 years um from what I've read so it's not yeah. certainly not unusual um yeah. and yeah I mean obviously it's hard when people are teenagers and there's other stuff going on as well to be able to pick that out so I certainly don't begrudge like no. it not being identified then but I do kind of look back and think actually probably my sort of early 20s could have been really different if I'd have had the right sort of medication to be able to be mm-hmm. functioning a little bit better because I was just really really chronically depressed for, for huge periods of time mm. then and when I got my diagnosis um I was off uni for about three months to sort of like recover yeah. from that episode and then get settled on new medication and things like that um and that was frustrating I think because I, I I just thought there's definitely enough signs here that this could probably have happened four or five years ago mm. um than it has now mm. It's really hard, isn't it? There's a couple of questions coming through. Are you okay? okay. With that? Yeah, yeah. 
Listening to all of you, I would have taken a life in our hands, but why not? Why not go? For it? <laughs> um, I can see um, Alfonso's there. Hello, saying uh, love about life. It is nice to be about life. And Vanessa, who unfortunately can't join us tonight, um, has said um, internalized stigma is such a massive issue amongst mental health professionals. How do we change this? Mm. That's for you, by the way. I, that, this, this, my job is great. I just read them out, and now I look to you <laughs> to solve them. <laughs> um. I think it probably starts as soon as people start working in mental health services and about the language that we use as professionals around different sort of difficulties. So I would say probably, so I've been in the NHS for 13 or 14 years now. Um, and I would say, I don't know whether it's just because I work in like a different sort of setting now, but the language around eating disorders has got significantly better in that time. Mm -hmm. um, but language around things like personality disorders is still appalling, I think, in yeah. a lot of places. Yeah. Um, so I think we probably just need to look inwards at, you know, are we challenging our colleagues enough when they're making comments that aren't appropriate like yeah. that? Um, and actually, what are people being taught? So like just after I got my bipolar diagnosis, I was at uni um, and it was in a um a lecture with all the cohorts uh, all the yeah. branches of nursing but yeah. being taught about mental health and um one of the lecturers said uh bipolar disorder is the cancer of mental illness and I think what he was trying to say was that it's one of the most sort of like enduring and serious mental illnesses but obviously as someone who's just been diagnosed with it I was just like oh that feels really horrible actually that you've just said that um oh. and I think yeah. you know a lot of you know probably 200 adult branch nurses went away with that being the only thing they'd ever heard about bipolar disorder before from that lecture and also uh, because it's such a kind of woolly sentence they might think anything from it they yeah, might think that, that, that it, if you don't have immediate medical intervention you're going to die they might think yeah. all kinds of things about that from yeah that. absolutely um so <laughs> i think yeah i really think it has to come from us i don't think we should be expecting like patients or like people we look after to be the people that are having to be leading on this I think it should be us looking inwards mm. and thinking what are we doing as professionals that's that's prolonging this and like yeah. making this culture sort of continue um it's, I think it's, it's something that will take a very long time to change I know there's like a lot of talk isn't there about changing like um uh the mm. terminology around personality disorders and things like that but I think we can do that but if the if we're still as professionals not actually tackling the stigma that underlies that it's just going to carry on through to whatever yeah, yeah. label we use next and i think it's not just i don't think it's the stigma does is not the essential problem i think it's staff's feelings of helplessness mm. and frustration and feeling overwhelmed and not knowing how to help and then feeling angry because they don't know what to do or because yeah. they feel like the thing that's happening is outside their control particularly around personality issues i think and this I comes think back to what you're saying about um like training being diluted and things like that though because actually mental illness is really complex and if people are coming out yeah. of their undergrad degrees with yeah. just a handful of hours on training of specific mental illnesses then they are going to feel really de-skilled yeah. um to then go and start working with people who are really complex and really unwell so I think yeah there's a lot of it's, I think it's quite like multifaceted the things that yeah. we should be doing to, to yeah. tackle that I think as well then me saying I wasn't gonna have an opinion why was I kidding <laughs> <laughs> there was is um that we we look outwardly about all these types of um skills if you learn to listen properly if you learn to do this if you learn to do if you learn cbt if you learn, then you'll be better it's like if you don't if you're not able to look at yourself and say 
the way I'm feeling is angry. I don't want to be angry around somebody who's vulnerable. I don't want to take my anger or my fear and put that on somebody else. Or this is my problem. This isn't mm. their problem. Or I'm, I, I don't have enough stuff on the afternoon shift. So I'm going to make some jokes that aren't really jokes. They're passive, aggressive, angry. Mm. And then like, just stop that. Like if we can't look into ourselves, if we can't have yeah. some sort of self-knowledge, some ability to self-soothe, like adequate kind of protections for like working conditions, uh, proper supervision for young staff members. I mean, it, those are the things I think that are equally as problematic as staff not being able to manage complex therapeutic requirements. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot stuff of stuff too, isn't it? Yeah, a lot. Like a lot when of did this last person eat or go to the loo? Mm -hmm. <laughs> those things are really important too. And yeah. it is, a, is it, I find it really sad when the harms that we are experiencing as professionals then get put onto vulnerable people. Yeah. That's really difficult, I think. Yeah. But definitely. again, that self-stigma is, is such a complex thing to unpick. Mm. I hope that helped, Vanessa. I hope that was what you were asking. <laughs> um, and another one from um, Unite talking about agree that losing day services was a massive step backwards in mental health. Um, and um, I think one of the things I was reading today about uh, Greater Manchester is that they're losing some of their community mental health teams. They're becoming generic health teams. And oh, I'm I saw that. Yeah. Sure what that's going to do for people with even basic, let alone complex, but me mental health yeah. needs. And for me, that is such a such a problem. Yeah, I agree. I really did not like the look of that at all. Everything's just getting scaled back as much as possible, isn't it? Mm. It's this idea that if someone is generic, then they're going to know everything. It's like, no, mm. they're generic, they're going to be an adult nurse. That's yes, exactly that. Yeah. And adult nurses are awesome, but not at looking after people with learning disability or children with mental health needs or mm. with complex eating distress. They just can't do that because you can't yeah. do everything. Yeah. Oh, don't get me started. I've got another one here from a student saying, um, how did uh, how did you learn to blog? What, how do you do it? Oh, that's a good question. question. How do you do it? Because I was going to say, oh, that seems too simple. I was like, no, no, actually, I want to know. How do you do it? <laughs> so you kind of, in terms of like uh, practicalities, you need to find like a website to like host your blog on and things like that. And there's lots of free ones. So I use WordPress and I ran it for free for about... Um, a year before I started paying for it I don't monetize it now but I make money through like my Etsy and my books and stuff like that so I use that to kind of like supplement it to yeah. like fund it it's not that expensive if you you know if you, you want your own domain name and stuff like that um so that's kind of like the practical side of it is you need to yeah. find somewhere to actually host it um I'm not very technical with that sort of stuff at all but it's actually quite straightforward if you use something like WordPress or things like that like my blog's not yeah. the most like uh, fancy looking thing in the world it's quite easy to, to figure out where you're going um but that's not the most important thing I don't think anyway um and then you kind of so when I started mine it was initially going to be about what it's like to work as a mental health nurse when you have a mental health problem and mm. it just never kind of organically went like that um yeah. And like, I do talk about work on like social media sometimes, but not often. Um, and I don't, like, I, I never self-disclose to my patients at all. One, because um, I just don't feel very comfortable doing that. And two, also like their children. So that the power dynamics are obviously quite different anyway. Um, and it just doesn't feel appropriate for me to be telling a child my personal health problems when they've already got their own. Um, mm. But I will share it with like staff and stuff if it feels mm. like it's kind of appropriate at the time um but yeah it just never kind of worked out like that so then I just kind of started thinking about what do I naturally want to talk about in this topic and 
to start with was when I was still kind of like finding my feet and like finding my confidence so I was talking about mental health quite generically Mm. or I'd be like this is something I found difficult two years ago or whatever but if there was something I was currently finding difficult I still was just like I don't feel like that's something I want to share and then that just kind of gradually changed over time and then when I was when I had my like eating disorder relapse I kind of like live blogged my way through that like whole process um Mm -hmm because that just kind of felt like what I was comfortable doing at the time I do actually have a blog post about how to set up a mental health blog um which you'll be able to find if you they can find it and tweet it I think yeah um which is in a bit more detail because people ask me used to ask me this quite a lot um but I suppose like my biggest tips would be make sure that you're comfortable with like everything you're sharing because once you write something on a blog it's really difficult to get it back um yeah. even if you delete the post the chances are people will have seen it it'll be archived somewhere like um yeah. so you do have to be aware that kind of mm. even if you look like you haven't really got an audience that doesn't mean no one's going to see it or in um, the future people aren't going to look back on it because people have yeah been exactly <laughs> yeah exactly um so yeah I mean I, I just kind of think I just kind of write what I feel really so sometimes I do like um sort of like informational type posts and then other times will be yeah. sort of like a like a personal experience that I'm going through and then another will be yeah. like a reflection on something yeah. um so I just kind of go with what I what I feel like doing really but it's hard work like it took me a, a lot of work and a lot of hours to build up like the audience so it's like a discipline to it right now yeah definitely I think people don't realize like how much work it actually is this is why people mm. turn it into a job because it does feel like one sometimes so I actually only post on mine probably every couple of months now but I suppose every week and it's really time consuming um yeah. so you do have to be prepared to kind of set a bit of time aside if you actually want mm. if you want to gain like traction with it you do have to mm. put quite a lot into it in order to mm. get stuff back out of it and how do you make the decision like if you think this is a really interesting thing and I want to talk about it but I'm not quite sure whether I want to disclose it how do you how do you tease through that decision so my kind of motto now is if I'm not sure about it I'm not doing it um Mm. because there Mm. have been times in the past where I think I've shared things and then be like oh I wish I didn't say that and like a lot of my colleagues and like managers and things like that are all all have access to like my social media now so um you know I'm really conscious now like I'm writing this would I be happy to tell my manager this to her face tomorrow and if not maybe I shouldn't write it because she'll probably see it anyway sort of thing um or like my in-laws or you know people like that um Mm. so I kind of really consciously think like if I'm not sure if I want to say this I'm just not going to say it until I am sure Mm -hmm. and if that means never saying it that's okay and I think Mm. I used to think that I kind of owed people a lot of my like vulnerability and my like personal Mm. experiences because that's kind of how my audience built up and um people are expecting this from me so I kind of need to give them that and as time's gone on I've I've kind of recognized that actually my information is just is mine and if I want to share it that's okay but no one's entitled to know anything like personal about me just because they follow me on social media um so yeah I've I've kind of reached a point now where I think like unless I'm sure that it's something I want to say I just won't until I feel like I am mm. and that's such an important lesson like, for everybody with with social media and Dave's actually said there's a question I was thinking of actually around sort of social media was um what with it being uh International Women's Day and you being an international woman what's it like it's like being a woman with a hefty following online <laughs> I mean, um... popular I think is what I mean there <laughs> It's difficult, to yeah. be honest. Um, 
I think it could be worse, to be honest. Like, I know other people have it a lot worse than I do. Um, But I have had, um, like, a lot of sexual harassment through social media. Um, Lots of, um, yeah, like, abusive messages if men don't get responses that they want from me, particularly, things like that. Um, There is a really um, unpleasant sort of faction of men on the internet that really fetishize women with like mental illnesses or women with eating disorders and things like that and I have unfortunately overlapped with them sometimes Mm. which is really unpleasant but um I say overall like I I I feel like the sort of mental health space on Mm. Twitter and to a lesser extent Instagram is generally quite wholesome um Mm. and everyone looks after each other quite well um so I think it could be worse, but certainly I wouldn't say it's easy being a woman on the internet under any circumstances, but especially when you have like a, a relatively decent-sized audience. Uh, Michael Housen has, has said, I hope you've recovered from Sugargate, Cara. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, and again, if anyone hasn't seen there's been a... Well, I have to say, Alan Sugar has shown himself to be somewhat rude and insensitive and rather unpleasant, <laughs> which is, I don't think, a gigantic shock to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you raised many great points about diagnosis, stigma, labels and access to services. We need to go beyond labels and teach students how to work with individuals who are distressed. Absolutely. Um, Vanessa said, how can families help supporting someone uh, in recognising that they're developing an eating disorder? How best to broach this topic? Mm, that's really tricky. I think it really depends on the age of the person. Um obviously with children you just want to get in there like as early as possible because um early intervention has you know has shown time and time again that that has like significant impact on someone's prognosis and like the duration of their illness and things like that um I think it's just about having like really open and honest conversations as soon as you notice because eating disorders are so sneaky um and they'll do whatever they can do to kind of not get identified and not get picked Mm -hmm. out um so I think yeah certainly for parents you just need to have really like open and honest conversations with your children as soon as you notice that something like that might be a problem even if it feels like it's uncomfortable and they might not Mm. like it um, which they probably won't particularly if they are having eating difficulties they're probably going to really not like having that addressed Mm. Um, but it's really important for that reason Mm. happens Mm. Um, I think it kind of starts from like really as, as young as possible in terms of just like the language that you're using around like your own bodies and your own relationship with food and things like Mm -hmm. that Um, so you know if you if someone if a child grows up in an an environment that feels like it's got quite positive attitudes towards like body image and food and eating and things like that it's going to be more noticeable if that isn't the case for them anymore Mm -hmm. and that means potentially you're going to be able to identify problems easier maybe than in a household where everybody's relationship with food and their bodies is quite negative mm. which does happen you know all over the place I mean, but certainly like the environment yeah. I grew up in yeah I mean for me it's amazing that anybody is able to eat normally in particularly western society yeah you know when you've got constant bombarding with diets and and then I don't know if they still got it but they used to have the daily meal sidebar of shame yeah so I remember that celebrities bodies and yeah. they've got a ring around them and it's like no she's not not got like some kind of physical health problem it's like if she were to stretch up to a high shelf without that bit of fat there she'd split open that's supposed to be there you know or like horrendous and it it was so bizarre and I think as well with with eating disorders is one of those sort of health experiences that really is enmeshed with social media you know we have the kind of pro-anna websites and that idea that it provided a place for 
people who were really trying to battle with control issues to be in a place with people reinforcing it to most dangerous and frightening. Yeah. I think it's significantly worse with like TikTok and Instagram and stuff now than it was like when I was a teenager. I think it's, mm. yeah, for young people with like difficulties around their eating stuff now, it's an absolute minefield on social media. Mm. Mm. And I think as well with, with the more you have with filters and the more you have with people kind of presenting themselves as an artistic project. Yeah. You know, cause it's not, none of it is real. You know, when you sometimes see people's faces moving, their filter comes sort of like down here. And yeah. Like, oh, oh my God, you're like 65, right? Like, yeah. See that. <laughs> There's some countries, I want to say maybe in like Scandinavia way, but don't quote me on that, where it's it's law to post, to make a disclaimer if you've used a filter mm. um, or like photo editing on any of your posts. And I think that just should be the case everywhere because yeah. it's so hard to tell nowadays. Mm. It's so hard to tell if someone's edited their mm. photos. Um mm which you know most most people are to some extent and and it's not the the fact that it's edited because I think probably most young people do know that photos are edited but what you see and what you take in through your eyes and what you feel in your heart I think do get confused even if you know it's like like advertising happens because it works yeah and if you're advertising something that's not real or not even physically possible it's not a shock to me that young people or anybody still takes it in and yeah. still looks at themselves in the mirror and, and has really horrible thoughts about themselves. Yeah, and it's a really difficult time to be a teenager, I think, at the moment. Yeah. And you're never going to be able to afford a house, teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like, you couldn't pay me to be a teenager again. It was awful. No. Yeah. <laughs> Look at us. We sound like the old woman of the hills. I love, that. <laughs> love that about us. I say this to my kids at work sometimes, though. I'm just like, this is really mm-hmm. hard. Like, this is such a hard period of your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, anyone will say that, no matter how old they are, will yeah. say that being a teenager is really difficult. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple more questions, I think, before we start to finish up. Um, one is, if you could change one thing about mental health services today, what would you change? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Big question. Thank you. Thank you, year one. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say like an umbrella term because I think this covers a lot of things, which is money. Um, Because I think if there was more money, we'd have more therapies we'd have more Mm. staff we'd have more Mm. provision we'd have shorter waiting lists um Mm. you know so I think that if funding was better that would have a a massive knock-on effect to every other area really so that's a bit of a uh cheat a cheat of an answer there but I think that would be my my big wish would just be for us I suppose just to have like more parity with physical health services Mm. Okay. Um, Dave, is there anything that you wanted to ask? Because we're obviously going to be coming to the to the end now. Yeah, I think it's it's the, the main thing for me tonight, and I know this sounds a bit of a cop-out, but it's so nice just to sit back and listen to the conversation, uh, especially on International Women's Day, because I think there's plenty of times where men want to kind of like, you know, get in on the conversation when actually sometimes it's better just to sit back and listen. Uh, I think the, the the thing that I was kind of wondering how, and Nikki, you're always better at sort of listening to me to sort of ramble on and then have a focus, a really good question for me. Dave but, suppose, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's that thing for me, Cara, that, you know, just looking at kind of just some of the tweets that you shared over the last 24 hours, how much you kind of see yourself as being sort of a campaigner in general and kind of, is it just that you've got a voice and you use it or is it that you sort of feel that you need to focus it to, to do particular things? And and I think, you know, just over the last 24 hours, we've just seen what an absolute bin fire of a government that we've got and kind of, 
you know, kind of what 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 are you what are your hopes for what you can achieve? You know, what 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 what's your focus? So my focus now, I suppose, is probably on like smaller scale change, um, yeah. just because anything wider than that doesn't really feel that realistic I suppose at the moment with how things are and I feel like there's so many huge huge problems going on in this country at the moment that we are you know a drop in the ocean in terms of difficulties with like accessing mental health care and like mental health problems and things like that um so I think probably my aim is just to try and make differences to like individual people um or perhaps individual services so like um I did a I like did a talk for a um like a corporate um company last week about eating disorders um just about like how the impact social media has on people with eating disorders and like I sometimes do talks to like other NHS services about working with young people with eating disorders and things like that I think like I'd rather focus my energies on like smaller scale change like that and know that I was doing something helpful than to try and aim too high and make no difference to anybody um, and that's not to suggest people shouldn't do that because I think they absolutely should but I just feel like with having like a full-time job in like a different area and stuff I just feel like I'm probably not the one to be doing that because I just don't have the resources to invest into how much that would take you know how much energy and time it would take to be able to do that. Mm. But it's the thing, isn't it? If everybody does the one thing they, they can do, then it's, it's yeah. doable. Go on, David, you can say something? I, yeah, no, and I, and I suppose it's just that question as well. Obviously, you know, working for a trade union, one of the things that we always try to encourage our members to think about is how to become politicised and then how to kind of stand for, you know, election and, and to kind of take that forward. So I suppose, you know, is, is there any kind of ideas in your future about that or is that something that you really sort of turned off by? Yeah, it's hard. I don't know. I feel I feel a bit like politically homeless at the moment, I think, just because obviously our government is horrendous beyond words. And I don't feel like there's really a very adequate opposition for it at the moment either. Um, in terms of, you know, I would like a very left wing progressive government and I don't feel like that's an option really in any of our parties, particularly mm. at the moment. Um, mm. So I would... I think I would struggle to find my place in politics or something like that at the moment um, mm. because it just feels like a very sort of uh, unpleasant climate politically, I think, in this country at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. To say, and I often think when people talk about that kind of element of things, you know, it, it, it really reinforces that bit about why proportional representation would be quite helpful because it maybe would make that it isn't so kind of, you know, tribal in quite tight terms. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear different people's views on that, because like I say, it's something that, you know, really keen to get more people involved in. And and I suppose you kind of highlighting that issue of feeling homeless. Well, actually, it should be that, you know, people feel that they can get involved to create a home, mm. not to sort of like be forced into a home that they don't want to live in yeah to sort of push the analogy to way too far sure. <laughs> i was gonna start um finishing up but i've just had one last um question come in under the wire you just made it um i'm starting a eating disorders placement in a couple of weeks i'm really nervous what do i need to know oh okay someone that's cribbing. a really good question someone cribbing but why not eh? um 
so I would say to summarize go and have a look at my blog because there's loads and loads of content on there about like things that are helpful to say to people with eating disorders things that aren't things that are um you know people experience they have eating disorders and stuff like that so go over there and have a little look and obviously like it's all free just spend as much time on there as you want um to find stuff out but I'd say the real main things to be aware of is don't comment on how somebody's eating unless you've been specifically advised to like clinically for example like sometimes when I was in treatment people would say things like you're cutting your food up too small you're not eating things you know you're eating things in the wrong order or or whatever um you're you're eating too slow stuff like that which was relevant to the situation um but if it doesn't have to be mentioned don't mention it and Mm. also just be really mindful about what like what conversations you're having about like your own relationship with food because sometimes people in those settings will make really careless comments about diets and having like poor body image and things like that whilst that might feel like a way that you can be able to relate to people being on a diet and having poor body image is not the same as having an eating disorder at all like those two things are just not the same um and it's really important I think to not try and um sort of crowbar your feelings about those sort of things into someone who's in like treatment for a, a severe eating disorder and yeah just don't make any comments about their appearance which kind of is a bit of an obvious one really but sometimes it sounds obvious but sometimes it's not um so definitely yeah. don't say anything like you look well you look healthy anything like that those are literally like kryptonite to people with an eating disorder so yeah if you can avoid saying something about how someone looks or how they're eating try to do that mm absolutely yeah there's a lot more to somebody than the reason they've had to come into services mm. you can talk about anything else anything and i think sorry i just let one last little point and then i'll stop yeah. talking um people really lose themselves when they have an eating disorder it just becomes like literally your entire life so it's gonna be really nice to just help people like learn kind of try and relearn who they are yeah. a little bit again if you're just asking them a bit about like actually what was your life like before mm you had an eating disorder what would you like to do when you leave hospital or com- I don't know if it's hospital or community place but what yeah. would you like to do when you leave treatment yeah. um you know what are your goals on going what things do you like doing at the moment when you're not here um things like that just try and try and just find out yeah a bit more about them because your whole your the eating disorder just sucks your entire life up and it can be yeah really hard to kind of get to the bottom of like who someone is when they're kind of really entrenched in it absolutely we're going to come to the end now. So is there anything, um, Cara, that you wanted to leave people with? I and mean, we've obviously been tweeting blogs out and things like that on the hashtag, the MHTV hashtag on Twitter. So if anyone's watching, please do have a look at those resources because they are really valuable as far as it's. So is there anything you'd like to say just as we're finishing up? A couple of things, I suppose. Like one is that if you are somebody that has like difficulties with your own mental health, try not to be afraid to talk about that at work or like with you know you don't have to share it with your colleagues but like with your managers and things like that so that they know how to support you properly and you're very much not going to be the only one like anecdotally obviously I would say probably half of people at least that work in mental health services have had their own difficulties with their mental health probably higher than that um so yeah don't feel like you can't talk about it just because that's the kind of role that you're in but equally if you are in that role be really mindful about the language you're using about mental health and mental illness because you actually don't know who of your colleagues might have some of those difficulties and they will internalize that and you will become someone where they actually think maybe you're not safe for me to share these things with and actually maybe you're not safe for your patients to be sharing these things with if that's kind of your attitudes that you have behind closed doors about these kind of mental health 
problems whatever it is that they may be um, so yeah one don't be afraid to talk about it if you do have them but also be really mindful that your colleagues might have their own difficulties and they are going to be aware of the like, kind of language you're using mm. around things mm. and you did mention as well the kind of importance as well if you're, if you're teaching or in a classroom assume that at least one person in a classroom knows what you're talking about from a personal experience yeah. as well this is not some it's not just theory for people it's it's lived yeah. experience as well um, we've had a couple of people who have put smiley faces up around bin fire. So thank you, Michael and uh, Darren, for the love of, of that term. And I think that brings us to an end quite nicely. So thank you very much for, for watching and being with us tonight and sharing your questions. Really appreciate it. And huge thanks to the very charismatic Cara for being uh, fabulous and interesting on so many different levels. And also um, managing a conversation from left field there on proportional representation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good night all. Good night. Good night.